0: It is true that many people serve the Lord out of many motives. Some serve the Lord out of a legalistic effort as means of earning their salvation as if God would be approved in all that we do. Some simply serve the Lord out of fear. As I t- used to tell you, my mom, she used to say, "Honey, don't ever mow your grass on Sunday or it'll die." By the way, I've tried that. It doesn't work. It still grows. But we, we serve out of fear that if we don't do certain things or do do some things that, that are not, we're not supposed to, that we will somehow incur God's disfavor. That something bad will happen to us, or at worst, we will lose the salvation that we have in Christ. Some serve because of the prestige and the, leader, the esteem. That leadership in the church often brings. And they they serve to gain preeminent church positions. I've seen it many times, especially deacons who serve the Lord not because they love people, but because they want the position and the notoriety and the publicity of the office. And so in turn, they use the power to lord it over the care of other people. Some serve as appearance sake in order to be considered righteous before the peers by fellow church members and also by the world. Some serve out of peer pressure in order to conform to certain human standards or religious or moral behaviors. Children, for example, are often forced to, into religious activity by their parents. And sometimes they continue those activities into their adult life Only because of maybe because of parental intimidation or merely because of habit. Some people are even zealous in Christian work because of the financial gain that it might provide for them. But as we find here, those motives for service are simply external. Unless it is done out of a sincere desire to please God and to glorify God, the Bible says that it is not spiritual nor is it acceptable to God. But on the flip side, it is possible at the same time for a Christian to begin Christian service out of genuine devotion to God And then later fall into a season of habit. Of performing certain duties mechanically. Merely out of a sense of necessity or pressure. It's true even for pastors and small group leaders and youth leaders and missionaries. All other types of Christian workers. Simply can carelessly lose their first love and fall into this rut of of spiritual or superficial activity that is done in the Lord's name but is not done in His power nor for His glory. See, even when the motives are right, there's always a temptation. Always a temptation to to fall into resentment or self-pity when The service that you do for the Lord goes unnoticed or unappreciated. Paul himself was even faced with many temptations, many times in his life, simply to give up his ministry whenever he was opposed or when things were difficult. But whenever the road got hard, the Lord always showered him with his grace. Giving him the provision, giving him the strength, giving him the endurance that he needed right at that moment. Because Paul's single purpose was to glorify the Lord. The displeasure, the disregard of other people, even, even those he even among those people that he was serving, it didn't deter his work. Nor did it lead him into this bitterness and sense of self pity. Verses 8 through 17, we find Paul's heart and his motivation clearly seen for the world to hear. His heart for Jesus and for the Lord's church are clearly seen, and he was deeply motivated by love for Jesus, by love for his church, and by a commitment, by a commitment to the Great Commission. And he wants the church at Rome not to fall into the perils of external religion. See, Paul was one who was very familiar with the perils of external religion. In fact, in The letter at Philippi, in Philippians 3, 4, he he makes that very clear. Paul said there, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. if, If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Speaking of himself, in verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I mean, if anyone had the opportunity to boast about their external religion, it was, it was Saul the mighty, the Pharisee who went around persecuting Christians and killing Christians in the name of Judaism. Paul wants to serve God through the perils of religion. But now, in Christ, his life is totally different. Totally different. He, is, he has been possessed by God's Spirit, and he is now motivated by this inner desire to serve Jesus. He's no longer motivated by self-righteousness or pride or self-interest or self-promotion or even peer pressure. No, now he's motivated by the Lord Jesus alone. And maybe you're here this morning and you serve Jesus from the pits of external religion. Maybe you were once motivated by habit, by fear or or gain, or maybe simply the approval of men. Friend, there is good news for you. And the good news is that Paul has a word for you this morning. Or maybe, just maybe, you once served out of love for Jesus, and now you're just simply burnt out, coasting on fumes. What you once loved to do, you now find yourself doing out of necessity or obligation. Sometimes maybe you're just looking for a way out. Friend, if that is you, truth is you're not alone. Trust me, I've been there right where you're at. But Paul exposes his heart here. And there we find several motivations, but really two main motivations that we can consolidate together. And there were motivations that sustained him for the rest of his life. Whenever he was bitten by snakes and shipwrecked and mocked and ridiculed among Jews, they were motivations that continued to allow his feet to keep going forward. Because we find first that Paul was motivated by an indebted spirit. As you read this text in verses 8 through 15, it becomes apparent to us that Paul, Paul does what he does because he feels indebted to Christ. If you look at verse 13 again of this text, he says, I, I do not want you to become unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, Notice what he says in verse 14. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul says here that he feels under obligation. I mean, is Paul somehow returning back to his old ways because he felt obligated as a Pharisee, he felt obligated as a Jew Does he feel obligated because God is demanding something from him now? No, that's not what he's feeling at all. If you look back in the previous verses, in verses 8 through 12, you find out in verse 8 that Paul possesses a thankful heart to God for what God has done, but also for the people who are in Rome. He's thankful because God has saved him. He's thankful to God that just like God saved him, he wants to be an encouragement to all the Christians in Rome. See, Paul feels indebted to Christ because Jesus paid the debt that Paul owed to God. That's why he felt indebted. Jesus, for Paul, Jesus was his substitute. Jesus lived the life that the Apostle Paul couldn't live. Jesus died the death that he deserved to die, and Jesus rose again to give Paul what he could never accomplish for himself in the throes of Judaism. And so now Paul's heart's been changed. He feels like he's got to do something. You ever feel like that? Brother Sean, you ever feel like that? Like you just got to do something? He's got to tell somebody what, what Jesus has done for him. What Jesus, in turn, can do for you. Friend, if we are going to be faithful to Jesus, we have to get back to this indebted spirit Think about it in this way, for example. Imagine if I lent, or imagine if you lent me $100. I am indebted to you until when? Until until I pay you back, right? And then it's over. If I pay you back, then that's okay. But look at it another way. Imagine that you lent me $100 with a stipulation to pass it on to someone else. Then, in that circumstance, when is my indebtedness over with? Is it when I give it back to you? No. It's whenever I pass it on to somebody else. See, Paul viewed himself like that. He, he felt indebted to Christ because Christ had given him an immeasurable gift. And it was a gift that God said, you can't keep it to yourself. You can't keep it to yourself. You've got to pass it on. You have to keep passing it on to other people. That's why Paul says, I am under obligation. Paul owes the gospel to people. I've often quoted to you uh, David Platt, former president of our International Mission Board, who says this, and it's so true. Because it's exactly what Paul's saying here. That every saved person on this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. You owe it to them. God has saved you, brothers and sisters. Not to keep the good news to yourself. Not to hoard what God has given you. But to pass it on to others. We see that an indebted spirit was what sustained Paul, but we also see that he, he possessed an unashamed spirit, too. Most of you know verse 16. For I am, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul saying, Honey, I'm not ashamed. Of this message. Paul indicates that. Some people. Are going to be tempted. To be ashamed. Of what God has done. And just think about it for a second. What is it about the gospel. That's so shameful. What's so so shameful. About the good news of Christ. I'll give you four reasons. They're not mine. Tim Keller made them up. I'm just regurgitating to you. But. The first one, think about it. The gospel tells us that we are spiritual failures. Anybody like that message? Sean, you like that message? No matter how good that beard looks, brother, it ain't going to get you into heaven. That's what the gospel tells you. It tells you that there's something you can't do. And I don't know about you, but my redneck hide don't like it. My my dad raised me that you put your hind end to work and make a living to provide for your family. If there's something that I can't do, that really makes me mad. But you know what? Nothing I could ever do could ever make God love me. Do you realize that? You know how I know that God loved me? Because of what Jesus did for me. The only way, friend, you can be saved is through a free Gift. And so all of your moralness, all of your religious activity means nothing. means absolutely nothing. It offends the person who thinks that their decency gives them an advantage over people who they view as not decent. But, but let's just be honest. We're all screwed up. We're all sinners. We're all messed up people. If you are sitting here today and you think, I don't deserve to be here, honey, you're in the right place because everybody else don't feel like they deserve to be here either, whether they want to admit it or not. Secondly, the gospel is offensive because it tells us that we're so wicked that only the death of Jesus could save us. This offends the popular belief of the innate goodness of humanity. See, here's the deal. The gospel would disagree with Luke Bryan, who says that I believe most people are good. Which, by the way, he says, I believe that most people are good. He's, you know, discounting Hitler and all the other people. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that the Bible tells us that no one is good. No, not even one. None of us are good. None of us are good. And deserving of God's grace. Thirdly, the gospel is offensive because it teaches us all so-called good, sincere people that we will not automatically make it to heaven. We've all been at a funeral where you know the guy in the coffin lived like hell all his life, and say, "Well, he was a hardworking person who provided for his family." Sure, if Johnny gets it, if if anybody gets it into heaven, it's him. That's not the good news. The good news says that it don't matter. If you haven't trusted in Christ, you will still go to hell. God is the only one who can provide salvation. If you're going to receive it, you have to do it God's way, not your own way. But also the gospel is offensive because it tells us that our salvation was accomplished only by the suffering and the service of Christ. Which means, in turn, we're called to do the same thing. This offends the person who wants to believe that salvation offers an easy life, a nice, comfortable life. That you will have your best life now when you follow Jesus. But Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me daily. He didn't say, every day will be a Friday because you trust me. He says, no, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult. but your life will be done to the glory of God. Just think about it for a second. Stephen, we've been walking through the book of Acts. Stephen, in our eyes, Stephen's life didn't end up too well, did it? But you know what? God had a perfect plan for Stephen. Stephen died a martyr's death, but it was to the glory of God, and God got all the glory from it. And for that is good, that is the good that God calls us to See, Paul says, I know this message is going to offend all of us, but I'm still not ashamed of it. I'm still not ashamed of it. Because I know that it and it alone contains the power of new life. Friend, do you possess that unashamed spirit or are you trying to make excuses for the gospel? Are you trying to replace the gospel for some cheap replacement that cannot and will not save? Or are you preaching that Jesus is your substitute, that Jesus died in, in my place and in your place? Imagine this, that if you work for Feed the Children, and you're given a huge donation, you know, a million dollars or so, Think about it for a second. What would people think of you that if you decided that you just wanted to stash that money away for a while? It's not your money. And you owe it to share it and pass it on to other people. Because it's the very reason why it was given to you. What would people think? Don't think too kindly of that, right? But, church, that's exactly what God tells us to do with the gospel message. We were no more worthy of it than anyone else around the world. We're going to look at that here in the rest of chapter one. But God blessed you with it, He gave it to you freely, He gave it to you right where you are at. And with and with the privilege of hearing the gospel comes the responsibility of spreading and sharing the gospel. And just like we feed the children, we can't stash God's free gift away. We have to pass it on. Friend, when you realize how much you owe to others, how unworthy you were to hear the gospel, how, how much you owed Jesus for him giving it to you, it completely changes how you look at your life. It completely changes it. Because whenever you see it then, you, you start to look at your ambitions and your dreams and your talents and, and all of your resources completely different. And you start to say with... People like William Carey who said there is only but one life to live and it soon will pass, but only what is done for Christ will last. You start to make extraordinary and what other people may consider to be radical decisions about your life. And efforts to proclaim the Lord Jesus Much of our missionary endeavors that we've done as Baptists are owed to folks like Carrie, but also Adoniram Judson. Judson was the first Baptist missionary ever to be sent by what was then the Triennial Convention. Now, is was part of what's called the Southern Baptist Convention. Judson was sent to Burma now called Myanmar in South Asia. But before Judson went, he had fallen in love with a girl named Ann Hasselton, who also shared his love for the nations. And so he, he was in love with her and desired to marry her, and so he he wrote to her father, wishing that he would approve of Judson having her hand in marriage. And so he wrote a letter. And thankfully, today, his, work, his letter is preserved for us to hear. Here's what Judson wrote to his later his wife's father, asking, her, asking him that he would marry her. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure, to foreign and sometimes dangerous lands, and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to er every kind of what and distress, to degradation and insult and, and persecution, and may even possibly a violent death, can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound of her Savior from lost nations saved simply by her witness. Dad, how would you like to get a letter about your daughter, about asking? How would you like a letter for Tony, brother? But this is how, this is how We have to feel about the gospel. Are you ashamed of it? Are you eager to share it? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to make sure your friends and your family, your co-workers, and even the nations, to hear of the only message they can save Are you even willing to take some intentional steps, even this year? I know we're right at the beginning of February. Of making sure that people in your area of influence hear about the good news of Jesus. I didn't do it. Maybe for you that means going on a mission trip. Maybe for you that means partnering with our missionaries somewhere in a foreign context. Maybe that means sharing Jesus with your family or friend who desperately needs it. Ask yourself a question. What habits in my life right now need to change in my life? Maybe maybe it's simple as... Simple as maybe committing to having someone who's not a Christian in your home for dinner one time a month. Or inviting them to dinner. You don't, you know, maybe like my home, it's kind of dirty at times. So you just take them out to eat so they don't have to look at the mess. Or maybe it's inviting them to church. Maybe in like the next 90 days we have Easter coming up in just a few weeks. Friend, my challenge to you is do not coast through your life and hoard the gospel to yourself. Do not do that. Because it's not meant for you to keep to yourself. It's not. Friend, do you feel eager and unashamed? Before we go this morning, I have just a short video that I want you to listen to, so take a look.
1: Stop me if you've heard this one. You grow up, you graduate high school, you attend the best college you can get into, and a few years later you graduate again. You marry the perfect girl and move into a small character building apartment. Over the next couple of years, you had a house, a dog, and two-ish children. A perfect start to a picket fence life. Time begins to roll by, your kids grow up, you get involved at your church, just like you're supposed to do. And sure, you have opportunities to engage more with the outside world, but it's hard enough to balance your job, church, wife, and two-ish kids. Your life continues speeding along, your children grow up and make you a grandfather, eventually you retire and start spending a little too much time in Florida, but it's okay to relax. After two generations, you've impacted the eight lives in your family. Finally, at the end of it all, the Lord calls you home. And it was a good life, right? Work, family, church, because whichever order you put them in, that's all there is, right? What would happen if we shook up that formula? Imagine if we went out of our way to engage with our world, coworkers, neighbors, old friends, and not just engage, disciple. Imagine if we took one year and discipled one person from our world. Took a year and truly shared the message of love, salvation, and freedom in Christ to that one person. And what if inside that year that person started to follow Jesus? But let's not stop there. What if the next year that person began to disciple someone else, and you did the same thing, and two more people came to know Christ? And what if you did this year after year, person after person, and each of them picked one person year after year, and each of them, and each of them? If this kept going for 30 years, that would mean that 1,073,741,824 people could hear the gospel. That's a little more than eight. The thing is, it's not a joke, and it's not a gimmick. Most importantly, it's not impossible. It's one person boldly making a commitment to bringing one other person to Christ. And it all starts by asking the question, Who's your one?
0: See, church, what God has called you to, and me to, is not impossible. Today, statistically, there are 7 billion people in the world. And you just saw the video. If you committed to sharing Jesus with one person, just one person, and they in turn share it with someone else, in 30 years you would have reached over a billion people. Let me ask you a question today. Who's the person that God's laid on your heart to share Jesus with this year?